Hello, podcast listeners. This is Teresa McBean here at North Star Community. I'm uh, a co-pastor here, and I'm here with my fellow co-pastor. I'm Scott McBean. I'm the associate pastor here at North Star Community <laughs> and Teresa's son. And he does sound like he's in middle school and his voice is changing, but really, he has a bad cold. Yeah, a little bit under the weather today. Um, this is our third attempt at the podcast because I keep having technology problems, but um, we're excited to do this again. We are, and we are thinking third time is the charm. Yep. Because we believe in superstition. That's um, right. <clears throat> we are continuing on in our series of First John, and you're in the third chapter, roughly verses 16 through 21. You probably bleed before and after that a bit, but that was roughly what you taught from last weekend. And I found the conversation very interesting. You started out with the premise that everybody uh, is for love. In a world where people can't agree on much of anything, everybody agrees the world would be a better place with love. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting thing. Uh, we do live in, a, in an increasingly polarized uh, society, and there's many things we don't agree on, but in theory... Everybody would say that they love love, right? I mean, everybody thinks that love is a good thing. Everybody thinks that we should have more of it, whether we're talking about family relationships or in friendships or romantic relationships or even with our coworkers or amongst various people groups. Uh, we all think the world needs more love. Now, okay. okay. Yeah. So I got to tell you a story. Okay. So uh, I mentor a group of people once a month. And um, so we were talking about uh, love in our mentoring class and boundaries yesterday. Okay. And so I presented the uh, quote, quote, um, false uh, example to work with of what if someone you loved cheated on you, a yep. partner or whatnot. Yeah. And then we whiteboarded all their answers for, okay, presuming you really love this person and they cheat on you, what is your response? Mm -hmm. Let me give you a few. Okay. Kill them. Okay. <laughs> Kill them and the, you know who, who cheated with them. Yep. Throw all their clothes out and possessions okay. out. You got some very honest answers. Oh, man. I love this group so much. They were so honest. Um, divorce them. Um, uh, stalk them. I mean, I was like, okay, we're going to have to erase this whiteboard and promise never to talk about this again. Yep. Um, and so the place we were coming from reminded me of one of the things that we talked about in this weekend message, which is we say we're for love, but love is easily misunderstood or misapplied, right? And um, you really opened that up by asking a question early on. What was your question and what kind of responses did you get? Well, uh, to finish the the first idea that I was trying to get to earlier, um, <laughs> are I, you saying I interrupted you? <laughs> well, that's fine to interrupt. Uh, it it is the nature of a conversation. Um, it, in in a world where we agree on so little, I find it interesting that we agree on love, 
But where my mind goes with that is we probably don't actually agree on love because what is the common definition that we're sharing of love? Right. And I don't know that we really have one. I mean, I think everybody knows that it's supposed to be good. Uh, But then if we don't have a common definition, and then not only a common definition, but a way of pursuing that definition with the way that we live our lives, then we're probably not actually agreeing. You know what I mean? Exactly. So I think that it's, it's worth asking, what really is love? What are the expectations? And how would this help us uh, pursue it in a specific way rather than leaving it out here in the abstract as just some good thing that more people should do more of, right? Yes. So, and, and, if you, and if you don't really wrestle with what love means to you, and how you how you are going to apply it in your daily living, you end up with whiteboarding answers that say, if someone doesn't show me love the way I believe they should be shown, then I can kill them. <laughs> so, um, right. you well, know, that's whole, why this is worth wrestling with, I think. Well, it's a whole other, it's a whole additional conversation that's worth having is what's a loving response to unloving action? Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, today would be sort of the first part of a multi-part conversation if we were going to go there. But the first question I asked is, how do you know when someone loves you? And I think the reason that I asked this question is because I'm assuming that when you know that you're loved, like in a trusting, like when you, when you Like, I'm not talking about, like, quote-unquote, no. I'm talking about, like, you truly experience love. You are truly the recipient of love. I'm assuming something good has happened. Yeah. Um, And I'm assuming that whatever those actions are that created that are truly part of what it means to love. Right. Okay? Right. And so a lot of the answers that we got are things that I think are very much in line with the passage that we talked about which are like acts of self-sacrifice, people who will be with you through thick and thin. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the others. Tolerating your nonsense, I think somebody said. Yeah, sticking with you even when you're not at your best. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it had to do with presence and uh, loyalty uh, in a good way, not like demanding loyalty, but showing right. loyalty. Um And yeah, I'm trying to remember some of the other things. I mean, there were a bunch of things like affirmation, like verbal affirmation was one that came up. Um, But I think people were very quick to say, you know, saying I love you is part of the equation as long as the actions also communicate love, right? People Um, were very clear that love should be a verb, but that that didn't mean that, um, as you said, it didn't mean that you couldn't also say I love you, that they, they wanted that too, but they just wanted there to be a congruence and a fit. Yeah. So I asked that question, I think I already said this, but I asked that question to try to get a baseline for um, what are, what is people like, what what is love in the ideal, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the ideal version of love is the version that uh, it's what happens, you know, when... Let me back up. Whenever you have the experience of love, I think an ideal version of it has been communicated. Mm-hmm. So this is like reverse engineering, right? 
So the follow-up question was, how would your family growing up have defined love? And what, what I meant by that was, not what did your family say about love, but how did they teach you what love looked like based on their actions? Yes, and after we floundered around for a bit in terms of understanding uh, the question, which was a difficult one, I think, to try to really think about, uh, what we began to see that unfolded is that love can really be misapplied and that the ideal is often not what we find in the real world. And there were a couple of um, powerful responses Uh, One was as, uh, I don't want to use the word innocuous, but one was as subtle, subtle is a better word, as I felt loved when I was obedient, cooperative, uh, and performing well. And and I know this person well enough to know that they're pretty obedient, cooperative, and capable of performing. So I imagine that this person was able to sort of live up to that um, expectation of love, but no one would say that that fit the ideal, right? Yeah, so two things. One is I would not say that that the examples of, of family love are love misapplied. I would say that a lot of these examples were not love at all. And so if something has been misapplied, it would be the term love, but that the examples, so there was another example, and I don't know if we're thinking of the same person or not, where um, somebody said that they were told, they were, it was communicated that obedience would get them love, but when they were, even when they were obedient, love didn't follow. Right. And the, so- The bar just got raised higher and higher and higher. It either got raised or moved. And, you know, we call this like moving the goalposts as it, like the expectations are always shifting so that you can never quite get them. And so the experience of that is that you can never actually quite be loved. And so I would say that isn't love misapplied. That's not love at all. But this is so often what happens in families is we call things love that aren't love. And so it's a misapplication of the term love, but it's not even remotely close to what love is. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. And certainly as a child, you don't have, and even as an adult, you don't necessarily um, have the skill set or a larger frame of reference to say, wait a minute, that's not love at all. Yeah. Um, and and so, um, you know, many of us go into our adulthood without a lot of thought or consideration. If somebody said they loved you, 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 you thought, well, this is what love looks like. The reason I spend so much time making that point about these things not actually being love versus just love misapplied is because when so many people grow up with that being normal, then they don't know that, right. that, that, that what they've been told is love isn't actually love. Right. And so we've got a whole lot of people who grow up in our in, uh, well, I mean, I don't know if it's specific to our, our culture, our culture or our country or not, but the bottom line is, uh, whatever the reasons are and wherever it happens, a lot of people grow up with versions of love that aren't love. And we don't have models for what love truly is. And, um, this was kind of a silly example, but I think it's actually 
kind of important to consider, which is we talked about what, what love tends to look like in movies and television. Right. And I think that while people would say that's not where they get their view of love, I think for a lot of us, if you grow up in this context where you realize that you haven't been shown love and you have nowhere else to look, like whatever the cultural messages are around love that show up in movies and television are things that sink in. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so I think it's worth considering. You had a particular television series in mind that you used as an example. Yeah, I mean, Brittany and I periodically watch, I can only watch an episode, maybe two at a time, because it just, it's it drives me crazy, but Brittany loves it, so, you know, we, we, we have to take turns watching things from time to time. Uh, but the show Friends, which was such a seminal, you know, show when I was growing up, one of those ones that everyone would sit down to watch, uh, kind of taking over, I think it took over the time slot. I don't know if they were on the same network or not, but I think it was on the same same rough time slot that Seinfeld was in before it went off the air. Or maybe they were back to back. I don't know. Thursday night, right? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people were watching it is why I bring that up. And if you watch the show and you think about what it communicates about love and you look at these relationships and you ask the question, where do you see love on display? There is shockingly little real love going on. You see a lot of conflict. And we asked this question on Sunday. What does a good story need in order to be interesting? Right. And so Friends is a good story because what it had was a lot of drama. It needs drama. And a lot of conflict that always got resolved with a hug. It needs a good story in order to be interesting to keep you on the edge of your seat. You need drama. Yeah. And that is what that show offers up. You see lots of drama. You see very little love. So you see conflict and you see conflict followed by sitting together on the couch, one arm around the other person or a hug or whatever. And, you know, the music after the conflict has taken place, the music fades in slowly and you start to feel good about the world, and you feel good about it because you've seen them go through something hard together. And so the reality is you've got this manufactured conflict to create this quote-unquote sweet moment. You couldn't just have a sweet moment without the conflict when you're telling a good story. Right, right. Now, that's okay for television, but that doesn't work particularly well for real life. It's not a long-term strategy. Having manufactured manufactured conflict in order to up your adrenaline and get excited and then to calm down, sometimes that that creates a false sense of intimacy, but it's a false sense of intimacy. Right. Right. In real life, you are much better off to have a sweet moment that's not preceded by anything. Right. Uh, than you are to work to a, a sweet moment after a really horrible one. Right. But in some families, and we certainly heard the stories this past weekend in answering your questions, the sweet moments were only what happened after there was some real uh, absence of love, high conflict, abuse, um, um, just messy stuff. And maybe if you grew up in a family like that, that's, that's what your body gets used to, this adrenaline rush. Uh, followed by dopamine <laughs> uh, flooding from a hug. And so um, 
I you love... learn you learn to thrive off of it. I mean, right. I think that was kind of the point that right. I was making is like it is I hate to use this word, but I can't think of a better one. I mean, it is addictive in a way, or at least it becomes such a repetitive pattern that it needs to be repeated unless you have or learn how to replace it with something. But the point I think that, that I really want to hammer home is that that isn't love at all. It's a drama. Right. There's love and there's drama. And so often we will settle for drama when what we truly desire is love, but we'll call the drama love. Right. And that to me is the problem is when we start misidentifying some other thing as love itself. Or it's one problem among many. So what you did with the passage then is you helped us um, define um, love, um, and people sort of sort of got there on their own with their idealized versions of love, right? Yeah. We talked about it um, being a verb. We talked about it as. Um, could have a lot of emotions. It could have empathy. It could have concern. It could have compassion and kindness. But it's based on uh, this knowledge that everyone is worth consideration. Yep. And that we work hard to be considerate of others. And um, love is about action. And if you pair it with some words, hey, that's great too. But the action is centers around this idea that we are consciously seeking to be a people who make sure in our day-to-day actions that we show other people that they matter. Yep. And um, without the drama. And uh, I thought that was, that was really great. There was also a part in the scripture's well, let's 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 hit the pause button there because some okay. of those points were points that I made after reading this scripture. So let's let's read it so that people are uh, who weren't there this weekend are, are on the same page. That sounds good. Read away. So this is from First John three sixteen to twenty four. This is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But if someone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but refuses to help, how can the love of God dwell in a person like that? Little children, let's not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. And this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts in God's presence. Even if our heart condemn us, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence in relationship to God. We receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love each other as he commanded us. That was actually 16 to 23. I think those are the ones that we read. So uh, one of the things you unpacked immediately was uh, the C word, condemnation. So talk to me about that before we continue on, because I think that can be a bit of a stumbling block for folks. Yeah, it tends to be, even if it's not central to the overall point that we're making, if there's something in there I know that's particularly confusing, I try to um, just go ahead and clarify it so that uh, we don't have anything sort of nagging at the back of our minds while we have these conversations. But yeah, there's this confusing verse 20, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. 
what's being implied there is that um, in this conversation about love and this, this idea, let's not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. And this is how we will know that we belong to God. So that is what comes first. And then it says, even if our hearts condemn us. And so what it's saying there is there's going to be times where we recognize our own failure to live out of our certain way of seeing that uh, we will not always love with action and truth. And if we do that, then we might get insecure um, about uh, whether or not we belong to God because our love is an action and the action is what lets us know that we belong to God, right? So the logic goes. And so we may think from that, if I'm not loving in this, for instance, does that mean I no longer belong to God? And what it's saying here is God's greater than your heart. He's greater than that nagging suspicion uh, that perhaps you stepped outside of the community. And it's saying he knows all things, and essentially he can see through uh, the ways in which uh, we don't always honor our way of seeing with how we live. So essentially, there, all that's going on there is there's provision for mistake. And the significance of that is that God's love for us is stable and secure. And I think that's particularly significant when you contrast it against the version of love, which we call drama love, uh, that many of us grow up with. So if you're taught that you need to do certain things in order to earn your parents' love, and then you do those things and you don't earn it, or if you're taught that you need to have conflict in order to, to be loving, what you have then is not stable and secure. You never know what's coming next. And so when you're taught that love is about never knowing what's coming next, then you lack a certain base security that you need uh, to develop into it, into the most fully human version of yourself. And I mean that in the best possible way. So when we've got like a TV show, for instance, and we talk about drama, uh, it's great for drama when you don't know what's coming next as a viewer because it's a more exciting story if you don't know what's coming next. But as a person in life, if you don't know what's coming next, uh, well, that really messes with you in some pretty destructive ways. So when we look at this, what we begin to see unfold for us is this model or example of love that does not require perfection. It makes uh, room for faltering and missing the mark without costing us belonging. Right which is super important. So now we're flushing out what this love thing looks like in the kingdom of God, and that is pretty cool. So God um, sees more than just our mistakes and our inability to love perfectly. And I think really crucial is going back to this idea that just because we don't do it perfectly, uh, it does not cost us belonging which is a huge deal. Yeah, I think what this passage is giving us is a very clear uh, set of expectations for what love is. And at the same time, letting us know that our status before God is stable and secure, even though our ability to live up to those, uh, those expectations will be mixed. 
Right. So it's okay that our ability to meet those expectations is mixed. That doesn't mean that we lower or change the expectations. It means that we find a way to relax into this idea uh, that our status before God is secure. So the class I was running yesterday, when they wrote all these amazing things on the whiteboard, um, you could sense in the group that they had a level of honesty and trust in one another that they could write those things. Yeah. I asked a follow-up question that said, how much of these ideas fit with your core values as a faithful person? Right. And they started erasing almost everything from the board, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And they weren't embarrassed by that. Uh, it, it was, it was such a cool experience. They were like, yeah, that, that is how I'd react, but it, it doesn't go along with my core values. So, hey, yeah, we should pause to prepare, right? <laughs> uh, which was sort of my point, um, with them. And, um, they were like totally down with that. And I think that what I saw there was a place that was extremely loving. Yeah. And there didn't need to be any judgment, and um, I just I just thought that was a that was fantastic sort of a, example. That was sort of both dynamics on display at once. Of right. like these are the potential places where we had misstep, but that doesn't mean that our entire status has changed, because you have the opportunity to course correct and reflect and all those kinds of things. So, um, I I think that's a um, that's a good ant. Uh, sorry, covered my mouth. Uh, sorry, listeners. Uh, so that's a good and kind of funny example. Yeah. But it's funny because it's sort of true, right? I mean, how often do we, you know, it's not crazy to want to kill somebody who cheats on you, right? right? It, right. It's not unusual to feel that way. Right. Um, and um, I think, you know, that exercise is one that is the, I think that's the exercise of First John, you know, of does my chosen, does the reaction that I'm in the process of choosing match up with what I value or who I want to be? Right. Um, because that is, we, we've said it a number of times now, but that is what First John calls living in the light, essentially. Yeah. Is... Is what I've does what I've done match up with who I want to be? If not, I need to confess it. And I think you can do it the way you did it as well, which is you kind of anticipate. You know, you think through. God forbid we think through our actions before we do them. It's right? so radical a uh, thought, right? Look both ways before crossing the street. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but I think that's what we're called to. I mean, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, God's expectations, nobody promised that they're particularly easy. Um, They're difficult to live up to, but that doesn't mean that you're always on the fringe of losing your status. Right. That's the non-dualistic way of looking at it that I think is really, really hard because we slip into that God's expectations are high, therefore I'm not worthy, rather than God's expectations are high and it doesn't matter if you're worthy, you know? The other thing we did um, was then I flipped it, and uh, I said the the next question was, uh, now, what if you were the one that cheated? Mm -hmm. And 
Probably there was a person or two in there who had done that. A hundred percent of the people had cheated. Raised their hands. And, And so we talked about, is this the response you would want? You want somebody to give you. And several of them were like, that's the exact response I got. You know, I said, well, clearly they didn't kill you. Right. And one of the guys said, that doesn't mean they didn't try, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) So it was this, this, um, I was just excited by the thoughtfulness of the conversation of the example, but that wasn't the only example that we had of first John in real life. You went to a meeting where you saw it too. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, one of our, one of our loyal, uh, uh, people at North Star has been um, has invited me to go to um, an NA meeting with him um, off and on for a few months, and um, I just happened to have a, f- a Friday night where uh, we didn't have any family stuff going on. We try to make that a family night, and sometimes it doesn't work out. So I said, "Okay, this is a good night for me to go." And it had been a while since I'd been to a um, a meeting, and I had been to some before in the past, but. Um, you know, I guess it, some of the stuff that happened hit me in a new way, or perhaps I was just more comfortable. I knew some of the people there and didn't feel like such an outsider as I had felt like in the past. And so I think I was able to sit and take stuff in more than normal, but, you know, in the beginning of the meeting, they read a variety of things. Um, they may do a step reading or a reading from a daily meditation, which they did, but they, they also kind of read the group norms and they, they, they give uh, an idea. If somebody's there for the first time, they're giving a newcomer a way to understand what's about to happen and what's going on and what it would look like to integrate as part of the group. And so they share the group values and ideals and that kind of thing. And one of the, the, one of the things that they do in that time is they give the newcomer an opportunity to speak if they have something pressing that they need to say. And I just thought, like, this is such a lovely example of what it means to sacrifice yourself for the sake of something larger than yourself. The newcomer is always the highest priority. And that, to me, um, in a way, uh, if you were only looking at it through like a typical, through the lens of how our culture would typically work, the newcomer would not be the priority because they hadn't proven that they were worthy of being part of the group yet. Right. And so what this group is saying is you're here, you're part of, and your needs are more pressing than ours. Now, there's lots of people there who aren't newcomers who have pressing needs, right? And so what that means is they're willing to forego uh, some of the things that they need from the group in order to provide space for somebody else uh, to participate in the group. And to me, that's just such a beautiful example of self-sacrificing uh, for a community's values. Right. And um, I just think it's a beautiful illustration of the principle that's uh, being discussed here in this passage. So yet again, we see how thoughtfully thinking about what the Scripture's teaching us can make a really big difference in just our daily, uh, sometimes the most habitual mundane parts of our daily life. Yeah. Uh, like how to show up in a support group or a meeting or... Uh, anywhere you go. So I love that example. Um, I loved my class experience this week. Uh, I love my life and uh, being part of a community that um, cares about recovery and being faithful in recovery. So 
Life is good for me. <laughs> so I think we've said everything we're going to say about that. So we are going to bring you our new closing segment, which we didn't do last week because we're still getting adjusted to it, but it's our recommendation station. Mm. What do you have to recommend this week? Why don't you go first? <laughs> to give you something to think about because you forgot. I did. I completely yeah, forgot I should, about I it. I should have reminded you. Um, I am listening to a podcast called Hi-Fi Nation. It's pronounced, or it's spelled H-I-P-H-I Nation. Okay. Um, so if I describe it to you, it's not going to sound as interesting as it is because it's a, it's a philosophy podcast done in story form. So basically, they're introducing philosophical ideas to you, but in ways that are like really fun to listen to because they're just telling stories about people and then pointing out the ways in which um, there are some deep issues at play. And so it's very easy to listen to. It's not at all confusing. Um, and you don't need to at all have ever had any kind of interested interest in philosophy to enjoy it. But I think there's some really good stuff going on there. It's just it's just fun to listen to, and I'm having a great time getting caught up, and I'll be sad when I've listened to all the episodes. Oh, I've got to put that on my uh, must-listen-to list. If you want something a little more salacious, then you could li- listen to something like To Live and Die in L.A., which is a, a crime podcast. I love my crime podcast. Yeah, most people do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have been reading a book about the real-life saga of a woman by the name of Fauna Hotel. Hotel. <laughs> That's quite a name. I Fauna. I don't know what Hodel. Her... It's Hodel. Hodel. Final Hodel, who was uh, given up for. If a... that doesn't end up being her name, we apologize. No, it is. It's fa- <laughs> it's Fauna Hodel. So okay. you can look it up. Okay. And I, now, what I'm probably going to get wrong is the title of the book, but I think it's called "She Will Darken." Okay. Now, you're not going to believe the, the premise for this because it's real life. So what happened uh, is that Fauna was born to an unwed teenage mother. One day she'll darken. One day she'll darken. There you go. And um, Fauna's mother was white. And someone in her family picked, for whatever reason, a black woman who was working in a Reno casino um, tending as a bathroom attendant and told her to adopt this, offered this baby up for the gift of adoption and told her that the baby was of mixed race and that turned out to be a lie. So this black family adopted a white baby. And this is the story um, of the trauma of a young white girl in the 60s being raised in a black community. And it is fascinating and terrifying and confusing and in the words of Fauna Hodel, an ultimate love story. So I would recommend it to you as a read. Okay. That sounds pretty intense, and I might skip that one. Uh, well, you would be 
sadly mistaken if you do because there's also some crime and drama associated with it. Okay. So um, I know you probably won't read it, but I bet your wife will when I tell her about it. Well, I'm also open to reading anything that might help us understand what our daughter goes through. Um, as a black child being raised by a white family. So maybe that'll give us some insight. Well, that's exactly why I started reading it. Right. I, I figured that. But it was, uh, it's really interesting. Really interesting. So that's my pick. Cool. Well, the music that you're hearing that's probably been playing for a while now is from Blue Dot Sessions. They can be found on the web at sessions.blue. We got it royalty free. We are grateful for the work that they're doing. We are North Star Community. We can be found on the web at northstarcommunity.com. Or you can check out our campaign for Richmond at leadthewayrva.org, where we're getting small best businesses invested in the work of combating substance use uh, in all forms. Uh, we thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. See you next week.